Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Alpine Church. It's great to see you guys here this morning. And again, as Kaylee said, if it happens to be your first time worshiping with us, thank you so much for checking us out. We hope that you feel right at home today. Uh, We hope that you feel welcome. If we haven't met before, my name's John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor here at Alpine Logan. All right, let's get into what we came to do today, all right? And that's our midweek point of this five-week sermon series that we're going through called Anxious for Nothing. I have to confess, when we were originally talking as a, as a team, a teaching team of doing a series on anxiety, I wasn't very excited about it. I just didn't know how many people would connect with it. And I didn't feel like it was something that I really struggled with, and so I didn't know how much God would have to say to me. Because whenever I preach, I always focus on what God needs to say to me before I worry about what He wants to say through me. But as we've been going through this series, God has revealed to me that I struggle with anxiety way more than I thought I did. Particularly last week as I was prepping for the control freak sermon I was preaching down in West Haven last week, God just made it very clear to me that that I suffer from control freak anxiety a lot of times. The difference for me is my anxiety doesn't manifest itself in panic attacks. I never have trouble sleeping. I never have trouble eating. Thank the Lord for that. Instead, it manifests itself in anger and frustration. So, for example, I can't watch the news, and particularly this week, I didn't watch any news. Because if I watch the news, guys, I'm telling you, I get mad. I mean, I get fighting mad, and that, that, that's because I'm anxious. God has revealed to me that it's not righteous indignation that I have. I have anxiety. I mean, does anybody else feel like we live in bizarro world right now? It's just, it's crazy, Right? And I recognize that my kids are growing up in this culture and they're going to have a much tougher time living for Jesus than I did. And I recognize I can't really control it. There's not really a lot I can do about it, and so that's created anxiety in me. And after talking with people over the last couple of weeks, it is very clear to me that God has had His hand in us doing this series and doing it at this time. I've received multiple emails and texts and phone calls from people who've said, man, this series is helping me deal with my anxiety. Maybe you guys can relate to that. And one of the things I love about it is it's been very practical. God's Word gives us practical steps that we can implement to battle anxiety. And so if you missed either of the first two weeks of this series, I would encourage you to go back to pursuegod.org anxious and catch up on what you missed. I think you'll find it helpful. And then I also hope that you'd be sharing with others what you're learning. You know, I'm part of a men's group on Thursday mornings, and a young college student who's part of that group said, we talk about anxiety in my circle of influence almost every day. People out there need to know this. In a world full of fear and anxiety, we should be introducing people to the Prince of Peace. Now, today we're going to talk about the anxiety that you and I experience when our thoughts run wild. So, I want to lay out a couple of scenarios for you, and you tell me if any of these sound familiar, if you can relate to any of these. Scenario number one, you just had some tests run at the doctor's office, and he or she tells you, okay, we'll get back to you within a week with those results. And you're thinking, in a week? Like, I want to know now. And every day, your thoughts start running about what those results are going to say. Sometimes multiple times a day, and it ruins your whole week. 
Maybe this one sounds familiar. Your boss stops by your office or your workstation at 9 in the morning and says, hey, I got a meeting I need you to come into at 3 o'clock, but he doesn't tell you what the meeting's about. And you've heard rumors that there are going to be layoffs at, at the company that you're with. And you've got a ton of stuff to do. You've got deadlines staring you in the face, but you get nothing accomplished that day because all you can think about is that meeting at 3 p.m. Or maybe lastly, related to your family, maybe you have a family member that's wandered away from God or maybe they never had a relationship with God. And you see some of the choices that they're making and you see those consequences and you worry about all the what-ifs. What if, what if they have an addiction that they can't break? What if they get into legal trouble? What if they keep making these choices? And your thoughts just keep going back to it over and over and over again. You kind of chew on it. And if you've ever had a situation like any of those or, or even any other situation where your mind just keeps going back to that same pattern of thoughts over and over again, that's called rumination. So the first definition is a deep or considered thought about something. Now there's a, a second definition of rumination that I think is instructive for us as we talk about this, and that is the action of chewing the cud. Now, please don't twist this and go home and tell everybody I called you a bunch of cows this morning, because I didn't. I'm going to deny it. But isn't that a great picture of what it's like when we can't get something out of our head? And we just keep thinking about it over and over. See, rumination is when your mind chews on something over and over, and it's a classic symptom of anxiety. We chew on it for hours and hours, sometimes for days and days. And not to be too graphic, but for any of you that grew up on the ranch or on the farm, you know that when a cow is chewing its cud, it's actually re-chewing food it had already swallowed and partially digested. And then it throws it back up and it just sits there and chews on it. And isn't that what happens with our thoughts sometimes? We have this anxious thought that we're battling and we finally feel like we get it put to bed. And then something triggers it and we throw it back up and we chew on it some more. Well, I'm so thankful that God's Word actually speaks to this. It actually talks about how to battle this, this habit of ruminating on something. It gives us very practical insight. Now, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 again. We've been spending all of our time in this chapter, so if you want to turn there in your Bible or on your Bible app. It says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So we see this phrase, fix your thoughts and think about these things. See, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognized that the battle is primarily in our minds. Now, we're going to dig into this verse in a lot more detail in just a minute, but before that, we're going to talk about the brain. We're going to get a little bit heady here for a second, no, no pun intended. But anxiety is an emotion caused by the brain's reaction to situations, not the situations themselves. The brain is a very complex organ. God designed it. Scientists are still really trying to figure out exactly how it works. In the book, Rewire Your Anxious Brain, researchers observe that many people believe that situations trigger anxiety Situations don't trigger anxiety. Anxiety always begins in the brain, 
not in the situation. Anxiety is a human emotion that our brains create. And there seem to be two different pathways that the brain uses to process information and to help us decide if we should be fearful to a situation and how we should react to it. And one of those is what we're going to call the logical pathway, and that's where this thought goes through our cortex. And our our cortex kind of logically processes it before it passes it on to our amygdala. And when it gets into the amygdala, that's when we start to feel anxious. That's the part of the brain that produces emotions like fear and aggression and anxiety. And when these fearful situations are processed through the cortex, we're able to think about them logically. So, for example, you see your child playing by the street, and your brain starts to process it. The cortex says, hey, that's dangerous. Then that gets passed on to your amygdala, and you start to feel your heart rate pick up. You start to feel that sense of anxiety, and what does it do? It motivates you to action. So you run, and you grab your child, and you pull them to safety before they head into the street. So it's a survival instinct that's pre-wired into us, and it can actually be a benefit. But then there's also anxiety that takes a shortcut. It skips our cortex altogether. It travels straight from the thalamus to the amygdala. And if you feel like you need a medical dictionary to understand this, join the club, because that's how I feel. But that's the process that goes. And with this type of anxiety, you're not even sure where it comes from. You don't even really know what triggered it. It may not be tied to anything, or it may be tied to something that isn't even logical. It just seems to pop up out of nowhere. Like you're going along about your day, everything's going fine, and then bam, it just hits you. I remember when I was a kid, I had this silly recurring dream of falling off a bridge. And I would have this dream about once a month, and it didn't matter where I walked on that bridge. I could be right in the middle of the stupid thing, and I would still somehow fall off the bridge. It wasn't logical. And so as a kid, I always got anxiety when my mom and dad were driving over a bridge. I shouldn't have. There's no logical reason for that. But all those anxious thoughts had taken a shortcut. Some of you in here have experienced a panic attack that just seemed to come out of nowhere. You have no idea what triggered it. You were having a great day. Everything was going along fine. And Danny, all of a sudden, you, you can't breathe. You feel like the walls are closing in on you, and you don't know what the cause of that is. That's because your anxiety took a shortcut. See, basically, a panic attack is your body launching into the fight, flight, or freeze response at an inappropriate time. Sometimes it's appropriate for us to respond in those ways. But it's due to an overreaction by the amygdala, often in response to some sort of trigger that poses no real danger. So maybe you've experienced something like that. And for a lot of people, when they experience a panic attack, they ruminate. Their mind starts going down the path of all the what-ifs, of all the bad things that could happen. They think about all the impending doom that could take place. Now, I can't think of a time when I've personally experienced a panic attack. It's just never manifested itself like that for me, and maybe it hasn't for you either. But all of us, I bet, can relate to ruminating. Every single one of us has had something that's got into our head, and we just can't seem to get it out. We just keep chewing on it over and over and over. And rumination can actually be helpful 
Like it, it can be a normal response. It can be good to think about different scenarios and how to plan for those. It can be good to kind of replay some events in your mind because we can learn from that. But it is not good and it is not healthy when it's frequent and ongoing. When it begins to interfere with our ability to be faithful in our daily responsibilities. When it begins to affect our relationships. When it begins to steal our joy. That's not healthy. That's not what God wants for us. And I would imagine some of you would say, yeah, that's kind of the place I'm in right now. Well, if that's the case, I want you to know that God's Word has a solution. God didn't leave you out there on your own. See, long before science understood the brain, the Bible offered a solution to anxiety, and that's to redirect your thoughts. I love how relevant God's Word is. That it's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when it was written Human beings are the same as they were 2,000 years ago, and long before science understood anything about the cortex and the amygdala, people struggled with anxiety and anxious thoughts. People struggled with fear and with ruminating on things. And so the Apostle Paul offers us a time-tested approach in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. We're going to dig into this deeper now. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Fix your thoughts. Some translations say meditate on. See, this isn't a a passive activity. This is very intentional. This is something we make a conscious decision to do, that we fill our thoughts on these things. Because anytime you're trying to eliminate a bad habit like rumination, you're going to have victory if you replace it with a good habit. We don't just try to eliminate the bad habit. We want to replace it with a good habit. You're going to have a much higher chance of being victorious if you can do that. And then Paul breaks down the things that we should be intentional about fixing our thoughts on. And first he says to fix your thoughts on what is true. Now true here refers simply to factual thoughts rather than the false narratives that perpetuate the anxiety cycle. Focus your thoughts on what is true. I would start by focusing on the things that you know are true about God. Focus your thoughts on the fact that God is sovereign That's kind of a churchy word. It just means that God is in control. We talked about that last week. Focus your thoughts on the fact that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is merciful, that God is righteous, that God is just. Focus your thoughts on those things. See, these truths begin to bring peace when we fill our mind with the truth about God. So often we fall for false narratives or we worry about things that aren't even true, or at least they're not true yet. You know, we worry about all the what-ifs in life. What if I get laid off? What if that test says I have cancer? What if this relationship comes to an end? Now, some of those things may eventually become true. That may happen, but we worry about them long before they're truthful. And then sometimes we don't just worry about the what-ifs, we worry about outright lies, I talk to Christians who sometimes worry if God will forgive them. God's already told you He'll forgive you. 
If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that when we confess to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to worry about that. God has forgiven you. See, remember, we have an enemy. It's not just lies from culture. There is an enemy, and the Bible says his native tongue is lies. Don't be anxious over the enemy's lies. In addition to thinking on what is true, I think you need to invite people into your life who can speak truth to you, who can remind you of what is true. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for times of adversity. You need brothers and sisters in Christ in your life who can speak truth to you, who can remind you of what God has said. It could be a family member, it might be a mentor, it might be your small group, but someone who can help you. Someone who can remind you of God's truth. Someone who can check in on you and just ask you honestly, hey, are you ruminating? Are you dealing with those anxious thoughts over and over again? Paul then tells us to think about what is honorable, right, and pure. Now, honorable, right, and pure refers to the things that honor God, avoiding the sinful lifestyle that's hidden from view. So here we're talking about anxiety that's related to sinful activities. Now, we're not saying that all anxiety is related to sinful activities. It's not, but clearly some of it is. If you have an area in your life that you're trying to keep hidden because you're struggling with sin, I can guarantee you it's causing anxiety in your life because you're wondering. You're wondering when people are going to find out. You're always worried about your cover story. You're worried about what the consequences are going to be if you get caught. But in these kind of situations, anxiety can actually be a gift. God can use that anxiety to draw you to himself. God can use that anxiety to give you freedom over that sin in your life to lay it before him. He can use it to motivate you to become more transparent. That's what King David found out. And King David had some skeletons in the closet that he definitely didn't want anybody to know. If, if you don't know the story, King David got one of his best friend's wife pregnant. And then he tried to set it up so that it would look like it was her husband's child, and that didn't work out, so he ends up having the husband killed. He makes an order to put him in the toughest part of the fighting in a battle, and all the other soldiers withdraw, and he's killed. And he thinks he got away with it. For a while, he thought he had gotten away with it. But then he gets busted. And in Psalm 51, he confesses to the Lord, Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Now, David experienced some consequences from that sin. Again, if you don't know the story, that child dies in childbirth. But David also experienced God's forgiveness. And David began to realize that there's not freedom in hiding our sin. There's freedom in exposing it. There's freedom in getting it out there. This is what David says in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. David invited God to search his heart. He invited God to test his anxious thoughts. Now, we don't 
know definitively why he was having anxious thoughts, but the next sentence seems to give us a clue. He says, point out anything in me that offends you. Now, keep in mind, we're not doing this for God's benefit. God already knows everything that's going on in your heart, whether you invite Him in or not. He knows every thought, every fear, every desire. We do this for our benefit. We're asking God to make us aware of anything in our lives that offend Him. See, we're so broken, sometimes we have areas in our lives that offend God and we don't even know it. We've put on blinders and we don't even realize it. Or maybe we're just ignorant of what God's standard is in a certain area of our life. You know, I was talking to a young man that gave his life to Jesus, and I know he loves Jesus. I know he's saved. I know he's forgiven. And he was still partying pretty hard and getting drunk almost every week. He had no idea that drunkenness is a sin. Now, I'm not talking about drinking alcohol. Okay? The Bible doesn't say that drinking alcohol is a sin, but the Bible definitely says that drunkenness is a sin. He just didn't know. Once he was made aware of that, he began to turn that over to the Lord. So we ask God to point those things out in our lives because it's going to take away anxiety. It's going to take away those anxious thoughts related to trying to keep that hidden. See, anxiety grows best in isolated, dark places. We want to expose it. We want to get it out in the light. And then Paul concludes this by telling us to fix our minds on things that are lovely and admirable. Now, lovely and admirable are two words that appear only here in the New Testament. They speak to things that build up rather than tear down. Come on, clicker. There we go. The only time you'll find these two original Greek words in the whole New Testament is in this verse. And they carry the idea of our thoughts being drawn upward. They carry the idea of of building us up because of our thoughts. It's kind of the mental counterpart to Paul's commandment to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.29. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So in the Ephesians verse, Paul is encouraging us to use our words to build others up. In the Philippians verse, he's encouraging us to use our thoughts to build ourselves up. See, when you and I speak words that are encouraging, we build up those who are around us. When you and I think thoughts that are admirable and lovely, we build ourselves up. And we've talked about the mind quite a bit today because really the battle starts in the mind. Romans 12 tells us that it's by renewing our mind that we'll be transformed. And when we start to see victories in our minds, it definitely spills over into how we live. And Robert, I'm just going to let you take it ahead because it's not responding. When you win the battle in your mind, you can win it in your everyday life. So this is more than some abstract psychological topic for Paul. This had real-world ramifications. This actually impacted the way he lived every day. And keep in mind that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from a Roman prison cell. Paul had been unjustly put in jail. He didn't know if he was going to live or die. And I'm sure he had plenty of time to ruminate. He had plenty of time to just sit and chew on these things. But here's what he says in verse 9. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. 
everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Now, be honest, when you first read that, how many of you think, man, Paul was prideful. I would never tell people to live like I live. Paul must have been so full of pride. Paul wasn't prideful. You know, Paul says in 1 Timothy that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of which I am the worst, he said. In Romans, he said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. Paul was well aware of his brokenness. Paul wasn't prideful. But Paul also understood that practically applying God's principles had benefit in this life. There was blessing in them. It brought contentment. It brought peace. Paul had experienced that firsthand, and he wanted the people in the church in Philippi to experience that. God wants you and me to experience that. So Paul says, keep putting into practice what you learned and received from me. This is ongoing. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We we keep doing these things. We endure. We persevere. But over time, as we win the battle in the mind, we start to see things how God sees things. We start to allow the things that break God's heart to break our heart. And it changes the way we live. And the payoff in this verse to me is incredible. It doesn't just say that we'll experience peace. It says, then the God of peace will be with you. See, experiencing peace on its own would be pretty amazing, but this goes beyond that. This says that the God of peace will be with you. That He will be the one filling you with peace. That you'll be experiencing His presence. You'll have a relationship with Him if you keep doing these things. That is an amazing promise. So this is what separates the Bible's teaching from any self-help book. There are plenty of books out there that would talk about positive thinking. Even non-believers would say redirecting your thoughts is a good thing, that capturing your thoughts is a good thing. But the Bible says, no, this is a God thing, that God is in this, that it's His power that transforms us. It's His power that helps us redirect our thoughts. He's the God of peace. He's the one who brings true peace into our lives. You know, I referenced earlier in the sermon one of Jesus' names. Jesus was called the Prince of Peace. And the reason he's called the Prince of Peace is because he is the only one who can help us have peace with our Creator. See, none of us will ever experience true peace if we don't have peace with the one who created us. The Bible says that We don't, that our relationship with God, the Father, has been broken because of sin, and every single one of us have done it. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard, and there's nothing you can do to fix it. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you promise yourself you're going to do better, you're always going to fall short. Everybody does, except Jesus. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that none of us could live, and He went to the cross He paid the debt that you and I should have paid. And the Bible says when we put our trust in Him, when we confess our sins and we ask Him to be our Lord and Savior, that something amazing happens, that that we're forgiven and we are reconciled with God, that we are put at peace with Him. If you've never done that, if you have questions about that, I would love to talk with you after the service. We have other people here who'd love to have that conversation. But I want to conclude today by giving you some very practical ways that you can keep putting these things into practice like Paul talks about. 
Again, that's what I love about this series, and very practical. And we're going to talk about three things that you should meditate on. Now, keep in mind, biblical meditation is far different than, than Eastern mysticism or New Age meditation. Those are all about emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is about filling your mind with the things of God. So here are three things I want you guys to meditate on this week. Number one, God Himself. Meditate on God and His character. Psalms 145.5 says, I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor. Think about who God is. Think about His character and His attributes. Think about the fact that He is holy, that He is totally set apart, that He is independent from His entire creation. I was, I was talking with a couple this week, and, and she kind of kept using the word universe instead of God. She's still seeking. She's still processing things. And I said, I don't want to split hairs with you. I'm not, not trying to pick on you. But God is not synonymous with the universe. God is transcendent of the universe. He created it. He is outside of it. He is bigger than it. He isn't dependent upon it. Think about His mercy Think about his righteousness. Think about his patience with you. Think about those things. Chew on them this week. The second thing I'd encourage you to meditate on is the things that God has done. Psalm 119 verse 27 says, I will meditate on your wonderful deeds. This is where keeping a journal can be helpful. Where every day you get in the habit of writing down the things God did for you today. And when you get into one of these battles and you're chewing and you're chewing on these negative thoughts, you can go back and read that and you see day after day after day where God has been faithful, where God has been working in your life, where God has been showing up. And then lastly, meditate on God's Word. Psalm 119.48 says, I honor and love your commands. I meditate on your decrees. See, it's actually through God's Word that we can meditate on the first two. It's through God's Word that we know who God is. That's how we know about God's character. That's how we know about God's attributes. It's also through God's Word where we look and we see throughout humanity how much God has done. So meditate on God's Word. I know it can be tempting to just kind of read through it and check the box. I, I get it. I've done that before. <laughs> I know what that's like. And there is some value even in that. God says His Word never returns void. But I want to encourage you this week, just, just pick a verse or two, maybe three, and really chew on it. Really ruminate on it. Are, are there words repeated in these verses? Right? Are, there, are there themes in these verses that I should pay attention to? Do I learn something about the character of God in these verses? Is there a promise I can claim in these verses? Is there a command I need to obey in these verses? Pick just a handful, chew on them, meditate on them. And I promise you, as you fill your mind with these types of things, you're going to see that anxiety get lower and lower, and God's going to fill you with His peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank You for the reminder that You've given me through this series. I thank You for making me aware and exposing in me anxiety that I dealt with that I, I really wasn't aware of, or, or maybe I just didn't want to be aware of it. So God, I, I don't know how everybody in here processes their anxiety. I don't know if, 
If it's, you know, panic attacks and lack of sleep and worry and fear, or if it's anger and frustration like I tend to do, but however it is, God, you have something better for us. You desire to give us that peace that passes all understanding. And I'm so thankful, God, that we can have peace with you, that even though you are perfect and holy and righteous and we are far from that, because of Jesus Christ, we can have peace with you. And so, God, I just pray that for anyone here today who doesn't know that, who doesn't have that peace. I pray that you give them the courage to take the next step. And, God, I also just want to just challenge us. This world is full of fear and anxiety. There are so many people around us who don't have peace. Would you help us to look for opportunities to share the peace we can have through Jesus with them? We love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.